Let us hear God's word, 1 Samuel 25, verse 32. Then Dan, uh, David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him, and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Now Abigail (coughs) went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning, when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Then it happened, after about ten days, that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Now when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord! who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. Nabal sent and proposed, uh, excuse me, and David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose and bowed her face to the earth and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michael his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Well, we started this chapter here a couple weeks ago with Nabal the fool refusing to be a good neighbor. Instead of paying David for his help, even though there was no formal agreement, this wicked scrooge of a man refused. We see him as a fool. But it made David mad, and he too acted like a fool, acting in many ways like Nabal himself. David foolishly responded to Nabal's sin by trying to go kill someone. Now, we may not pick up swords or guns or something like that when somebody offends us, though Unfortunately, we hear people do that today, Um, but all of us have retaliated in one way or another when somebody has offended us. Maybe it was a perceived offense, maybe it was an actual offense, but we all have retaliated in one way or another and acted like David here and played the fool. Thankfully, though, God intervenes for his people. He sends us things or events sometimes. And he even sends people to stymie us in our sin. Here, it was an unnamed servant who went to Abigail, who secretly sent 
David food and personally came to mollify David. Her soft answer to David's wrath was given. Her wisdom to overcome Nabal's foolishness is displayed here. And her faith in God led her to publicly acknowledge David as the newly anointed king who would rule over all Israel. Truly profound words here from this woman, as well as her actions. So we see God's grace to David, even to Nabal and his family, by sending these two people to stop David in his sin. So... When that happens to us, give thanks. Rejoice that God is stopping us in our foolishness, preventing us from doing these sinful and wicked things. Sometimes, though, God calls us to be the one that goes to talk to someone in their sin. Let's therefore be like Abigail. She was on her face, she was humble called herself a maidservant multiple times. She did not do so harshly in any way. She did not do so pridefully, but softly. Let's follow her example. Well now, how do we respond when God stymies us in our sin? Our tendency, of course, is to curse and complain. And we get mad. And, and, and so maybe it's some event that stymies us from giving someone else a piece of our mind. Your phone dies, or we, we can't get our car started. Maybe we shoot the messenger because we don't like what that person is saying, attacking the one that God sends to stop us in our sin. Sometimes we'll hear them out, but then we just ignore what they say. God's grace, his message to us to stop us in our sin, we just move right along and do what we are wanting to do anyway. Unfortunately, this is far too common. We are defensive, we justify ourselves, and so forth. So what about David? How did he respond? Does David strike down this humble, beautiful woman? Does David refuse the food and press on to exact vengeance on Nabal? Well, Thankfully not. Verse 32. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. David got the message. Loud and clear from this humble woman. He hears God speaking through her. And notice he begins, Blessed be the Lord God. He thanks God. For his grace to him through this woman that surely he had never met before, maybe never even heard of before, though the fact that he helped the shepherds, maybe he heard of her name or something. And notice how he words this. He says, um, uh, who, who you set this day to meet me. And you might remember from last week in verse 20, there were the two different words for meet. That David was coming out, to meet her, literally, and she met them. Two different words. And so David's coming out aggressively. Here, Abigail comes out to stop. Well, David now makes reference to that, and we'll see it again here in a subsequent verse. That He's like, thank you, Lord, that you sent her to meet me. She effectively encountered David and defeated him in battle, so to speak. 
So when we play the fool like David, when we are offended, do we respond like David when we're confronted in our sin? This is a perfect example of how we should respond when somebody comes for that speck in our eye or maybe the plank. This should be our response. But too often we retaliate. But like David, let us humbly respond. First, by acknowledging our sin to God. By praising him for his love and his goodness to us. By receiving his rebuke through someone or sometimes something else. For many of us, of course, it's our spouse that God uses to get our attention. When we are so upset about something, maybe that they did or somebody else did, and we're just ranting and raving, and God uses that person to stop us in our sinful behavior, don't ignore that person. Don't get upset. Don't force them to persist and say it over and over again until you finally get the message. Things, of course, we all have done multiple times. But instead, let's listen. Let's learn. Let's thank God. Now, it's easy for me to stand up and say these things. It's easy to say, yeah, do what David did. (laughs) But it's, it's hard to apply, isn't it? Sometimes, for some of us, we just, you know, we get mad and fight. Some of us, we just turn around and walk away and ignore them. But either way, we're not listening. It's not easy to do this. We frequently fail. But it's, we really have no excuse. Like David, let's praise our God for his care for us by sending someone to stop us in our sin. Now let's keep going then, verse 33. And blessed is your advice and blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. So here is David not only praising God, but then praising the messenger. Not shooting the messenger, but praising her, who surely risked her own well-being here to obey God. She risked her well-being because David could have harmed her. What would Nabal do? once he finds out. But Abigail doesn't care. She is doing what was necessary to obey God. And so those who truly try to stop us in our sin and are not being busybodies, not just being prideful, not being holier-than-thou snobs, not being those who just have to meddle, but those who really are trying to help us. Praise them. Thank them for what they have done, and and many times they risk in order to do this. And so the soft answer of Abigail turned aside David's wrath, and he thanks her for it. Let's do the same. Let us respond softly, not defensively. Let us respond thankfully, not grudgingly. Let's praise God, let's praise others, as God uses them to help us. Okay. <clears throat> but let me remind ourselves how, again, how often we tend to do the opposite. What do we usually do? Hey, we come home from work or 
whatever it is, and, and we come back, and, and we're just snarking around, and we're just being kind of hard to live with, and, and somebody says something to us about it, and we say, oh, I just had a bad day. Notice how we didn't listen. We defended ourselves. Or I don't feel so well. I've got a headache. Or, you know, that person at work, it, I, I am right to be upset at what they did. Or whatever it is. We might be able to count on one hand the number of times we respond like David does here. But we've lost count the number of times where we do the opposite. Okay. But once again, let's seek to follow in David's footsteps here. Notice how David instantly saw his sin. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't explain it away. He says, yes, I almost murdered people for a little bit of food. How foolish was I? I almost took vengeance rather than leaving vengeance to God. Now, David had a right to be offended. What Nabal did was wrong, but the way David responded to that offense was wrong too. And in some ways, you might say it was worse. Nabal was just refusing food. David wants to kill. So let's keep going then. Verse 34, For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. David acknowledges here that he was hell-bent on murder. And if it weren't for Abigail's haste, if it weren't for the unnamed servant who told her, then presumably nothing would have stopped David. God certainly could have used something else, but this is what God chose to do, to stop David from his murderous plan. How often do we find ourselves so blinded by our anger that we are so mad that everything else is just a blur and we don't even notice it. Okay. Again, far more than we might want to admit to. But let's be alert to the things and the people that God sends our way to help us. Let's be humble, let's be gracious, let's be thankful. Let's follow in David's footsteps here. God does not want us to sin and regularly seeks to thwart us in our rebellion. Are we listening? All right, well, verse 35. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. David's wrath has completely turned aside now by her soft approach, and he now is grateful for the food. Do you, you see the order of importance here? He thanks God, he thanks her, he acknowledges his sin, and then he says, thank you for the food. That really was the least important thing. And so this progress here of thought here in, in, in David's words is, is the right way. So many times the thing that offends us is really not all that important. These other things are more important. 
David here is grateful for the food. He is trying to feed at least 600 men. As I said before, if they all have wives and children, you're talking over 3,000 people likely. And so he is thankful. But notice he's even more thankful for Abigail. And as I emphasized last week, so we see here again, David's listening to a woman. Now, again, this isn't to be sexist or misogynistic or any of those kind of things, but it's just you so infrequently see this in the scriptures. And because of that, it's not to diminish women. It's to highlight how foolish David was and his sin and now this change. And so David tells her, look, I will not attack you. I deeply respect you. Go home okay, and, th- and thank you for all of this. Once again, though, our tendency is to be defensive, to strike back, to persist in our sinful plans, to manhandle the messenger. But let's follow David's lead. Ask God for help. But let's follow David's lead here. Now, one thing that we need to recall is that in chapter 24, we were praising David all the way through the chapter but it's not here until this point in this chapter that we can praise David. In the last chapter, remember, Saul came in the cave and David refused to murder him. That was a good thing. Here now, finally, we can praise David and say, let's follow in his footsteps. And so notice then, as you look at the broader picture here, that there is a call for us to be consistent David did the right thing in the last chapter. He does the wrong thing in this chapter until God stymies him. David needs to be consistent, so too should we. And so now here, David is willing to leave vengeance to God. He said that, remember back in verse 22? He said, may God do so and more also to the enemies of David. But then he completely ignored what he said and he took matters into his own hands. But now, he really is willing to leave vengeance to God. He says the right words, and he acts accordingly. And so don't just say the right thing. Do the right thing. Now, of course, through all of this, remember that God is dealing with one of his children. In no way are we talking about working our way to heaven or any of these kind of things. We're talking about how God works in his people and how, in this case, we can follow in the footsteps of other godly people. Learn from them. Abigail, and now even here, David, finally. All right, as always, there's so much we could say here, but uh, a few thoughts on this important response. So let's continue now, verse 36. And now Abigail went to Nabal. And there he was, holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. All right. We return now to the fool who is still being a fool. David was a fool and stopped being a fool. But Nabal is still being a fool. And notice here how he's acting like a king. He is boastful. And he's excessive in his behavior. He is celebrating. Right? God 
gave him a great harvest here for the, the wool. And David was part of that blessing by helping the shepherds and such. But here's a fool acting like a fool. In fact, the Hebrew word for fool and the Hebrew word for wine are very similar. I'm not sure that's an accident because wine often leads us to foolish behavior. Here he is so drunk that it's pointless to talk with him. And so Abigail doesn't say anything. Now, back in verse 19, she didn't say anything to her husband because she was trying to preserve life. Here she doesn't say anything because it's pointless. He's not going to listen anyway. And so she has to wait for the fool to recover from his folly. Now, one last thought here in this verse. In verses 2 and 3 and in verses 10 and 11, we saw hints that Nabal is like Saul. That as, as we learn about Nabal, this is a reflection on Saul and the kind of man he is. Well, now here's Nabal acting like a king. And so we are reminded of Saul acting like a fool as well. All right, so verse 37. <clears throat> so it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him these things that his heart died within him. He became like a stone. All right, so here's Nabal the next morning, probably has a hangover, nasty headache, dazed and groggy, this kind of thing. And here comes Abigail now to uh, tell him what happened. Now, think of it. Abigail may have been able not to tell him anything. He might not have ever known. Surely some people in the house knew what happened, but she could have told them to keep quiet. But notice again her integrity. She goes to her husband to inform him what happened and why, what she did and why she did it. Okay, she is honest and so forth. <clears throat> and in so doing, of course, she prevented a slaughter. She prevented Nabal's family from becoming like Nob. But when he hears these things, when he hears probably how close he came to death, now, if this was a man who always got everything he wanted, this must have been truly a shock to him that somebody would want to kill him. Um, once he heard about how foolish he had been, once he heard about a woman saving the day, once he heard about how much stuff he gave, she gave away, and probably a, 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 several of these things, we don't know exactly what it was that set him off here in this way, but when he heard it, it was such a shock that his heart stopped. We don't know exactly what that means. His heart died within him. Maybe he had a heart attack, but not you know so massive he died immediately. Uh, maybe it was a stroke, the fact that he became like a stone. We don't know for sure. Some major health event, most likely. It could have been an emotional shock. Uh, whatever it was. Nabal responds like this. You see the contrast. When David is confronted in his sin, he praises God. He praises Abigail. He repents of his sin. Nabal, when he's confronted in his sin, <clears throat> he dies within a week and a half. And so verse 38 tells us that. And it happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Do you see the point? If we, when we're confronted in our sins, do not act like David, we might die like Nabal. 
This isn't a casual matter. Sin is significant. God doesn't want us to do it. And when he sends someone our way or something to stymie us, listen. Because if you don't, bad things are going to happen. Maybe not death, but maybe other things. Now, as we read this, doesn't this remind you a bit of what happened with King Herod in Acts chapter 12? He was confronted in his sin, and he's like, hey, I'm a god. He didn't turn away from that. God struck him. Here, this senseless man becomes an inanimate object at first, and then he dies altogether. But then do you see this point? There is no need for us to take matters into our own hands. God did it for David. As I've mentioned to you, hey, we've had some pushback on the CRT conference, and some people don't want it to happen. And frankly, I've been like, well, what in the world do I say to these people? I'm not even sure what to say. I'm not even sure how to say it. But what I am resting in is that God will take care of these things. We are trying to stand up for what is true, to keep the church pure and the gospel pure. God will take care of the people who are opposed to that. I'm not worried about what they say. What I am worried about is what God says. And so here is David taking matters into his own hands. And in the end, he didn't need to do it at all because God did it for him. Now, this does not mean that we don't confront people in their sin. This does not mean we have no courts or judges or any of those things. There's a place for all of that. But in the end, God will be just. Rest in him. The wicked will not get away with their sin. Oftentimes, they face that judgment in this life. But certainly, in the end, in the next life, they will face it surely. And so, as God told Abraham way back in Genesis 12, he said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And here, the ball is is cursed. So, how now does David respond to this? Verse 39. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. I'll leave the last part here for for, um, uh, a bit. So first here then, David is rejoicing when he hears. So the question that faces us is David sinning. Is his response to the death of of Nabal something we should emulate? Is this a good thing? Well, not surprisingly, there are people who say that David sins here. That this is not the way we should respond. But we need to remember that Nabal was a wicked man. And, as we just saw, Nabal refused to submit to God when he was confronted in his sin. We don't see as much detail as when Abigail came to David, but when Abigail came to Nabal, he didn't listen. He could have repented, and he doesn't. Abigail spoke to him, 
But he responds in the opposite way as David. He had opportunity to turn his life around, and he refused. So there's not much sorrow that we should have for Nabal. Now, I say that and recognize, uh, we must recognize that all death is a bad thing. Okay? All death, even <clears throat> the caterpillar that you step on on the sidewalk, you know, all death is a bad thing. This is not the way God intended it to be. And so we must have a, a sorrow when anyone or anything dies. Because God created all things good and wanted good from the beginning. But... When sinners refuse God's offers of grace, they deserve judgment, and we should rejoice that God is upholding his justice. And so we are right to rejoice when God judges the wicked. That may not be our only emotion and thought, but it certainly is one that we can and should have. So let me give you this analogy. If you were to go to New York City today or San Francisco and you were to walk down the street and someone were to mug you, which is very much a possibility. Maybe you heard just here this week there were a bunch of teenage boys that beat up a young girl and took her scooter. Why? Well, it's because they're either not being arrested or if, they, if, are, if they're arrested, they have the no bail policy and they set them free later in the day anyway. And so the next day they go and do something similar. Okay. If God were like that, where would our confidence be? So think of it in this way. Say you're a citizen of New York City or San Francisco Bay Area, for example. Okay. You live in fear because the DA refuses to punish the wicked. Okay. Or you flee the city. Or you try to recall the DA, which unfortunately didn't work in L.A. here recently. But, but do you... Do you, do you see how it's a good thing for us to be glad when the wicked are punished? That isn't our only emotion, but it certainly needs to be one of them. So without malice, let's rejoice when God judges those who refuse his grace. Praise God for taking vengeance on our behalf against our enemies. Praise God when he prevents them from sinning not just when he prevents us from sinning. Now that in and of itself is worthy of far more words, but those are a few thoughts here in this way. I don't think David is wrong in his response. Maybe we need to learn from him in this way. Maybe we need to go live in New York for a while and we'll understand it better. Well, let's keep going. <clears throat> the end of verse 39 then says... <clears throat> And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. And then verse 40, when the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. All right, now all this seems very quick and it, it was. Uh, maybe we're talking, you know, a few weeks or something since David had talked to Abigail the first time, probably we're talking less time than that. Um, but we need to remember that women in that day could not really live as widows on their own. They needed family. They needed someone to care for them. Um, 
possibly Abigail was left on her own, did not have others to help her. We don't know any of that. But here comes David now in many ways to protect Abigail and to provide for her. David in many ways is being like her kinsman redeemer. David in many ways is acting like Boaz, as he did with Ruth. There is no indication that Abigail had any children with Nabal. Okay. What does this mean? Well, it certainly means she didn't have <coughs> children that could care for her. Does this mean that she was young? We don't know. But here, David wants to marry her. Now, we saw at the beginning of the chapter that Abigail <coughs> was this godly woman, fit for a king. We've seen her behavior now. She really is fit for a king, and now she's going to be married to the king-elect. She left all that she had, not to join up with the king yet, but with a fugitive on the run, fleeing for his life, and who had multiple wives. So verse 41 then, and then she arose, <clears throat> bowed her face to the earth and said, here's your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Like we've seen before, note Abigail's humility. It is very likely that she despaired over her foolish husband. Probably it was an arranged marriage. Well, now here is this godly woman being offered to marry a godly man. Not a perfect man, but a godly man in David. She is very grateful. She is humble, and she is a servant, as she says here. So verse 42, so Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Now, as we read through this, we might think it's a bit odd, but this, these were common things that they did in, 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 at this time in, in history. Um, and so there's no, uh, nothing bizarre about it at all. Again, there's no delay, but maybe she took a few hours to get ready or something to that effect. Um, she rides on a donkey, uh, she has five bridesmaids, and she returns immediately with the messenger. Now, of course, we're like, well, why didn't Gabe go to her and get down on the knee and propose and all that sort of thing? Well, again, this is not an unusual way uh, in the ancient world there. Um, notice there's no premarital counseling or any of those things, and presumably Ab uh, Abiathar or Gad married them, but again, we're not told those details, and all of it happens very quickly. So verses, let's read verses 43 and 44 together. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michael his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. All right, now, if we skipped over verse 43, and read verse 44, we might be persuaded that David was justified to marry someone else. Okay, here, his wife, Michael, was more or less forcibly removed from him. And so it wasn't so much that he abandoned her, but she was forced to abandon him. And we don't know this guy at all. Galim is just north of Jerusalem, so it's not too far from Gibeah. 
Maybe he was one of Saul's um, you know, captains or something in the army. We don't know. But we do have verse 43, which says that David had married Ahinoam as well. And very likely before he marries Abigail. Now we are told here that Ahinoam is from Jezreel. Now you might think Northern Kingdom, Jezreel Valley, and so forth. And that may be true, but there is a Jezreel not too far from Carmel. And so that is probably more likely where she was from. As you read through other passages, we know that David had at least seven wives. We know that he had at least ten concubines. Not as bad as Solomon, but certainly not what God intended. Let's turn a moment to 2 Samuel chapter 2 and just look at a couple things here briefly. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, notice verse 2 where it mentions about the two wives. Notice that Ahinoam is listed first, which suggests she was married before Uh, David married Abigail. And then if you turn to chapter 3, in verses 2 to 5, it lists for us his six wives. And that doesn't even count Michael. And notice that his firstborn was Amnon from Ahinoam. Again, suggesting that Ahinoam was married before David married Abigail and so forth. So you see a list of that there. Of course, we know he marries uh, Bathsheba. So if you count Michael, we know for sure he marries eight uh, women and so forth. Uh, if you look down uh, here in chapter 3 and verses 13 and following, this is when David sends for Michael. And she is brought to David, and his, uh, her husband, Paltiel, is basically running after her and saying, No, 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 don't take her away, and so on. But she does return to David. But there's no indication they had any relations after this. There's no indication that she had any children. In fact, she's not even listed in what we just saw there at the beginning of the chapter as one of his wives. So he does care for her here in this way. So as you read through this list, and I didn't read all the, the details, but you can see there are political connections here. He's connected to Saul. He's connected to these people in Caleb. He's connected to this king of Geshur and so forth, right? So these political arrangements. But you remember what we saw in chapter 8. Kings take. Here is David taking. Notice, again, back in chapter 25, he took Ahinoam of Jezreel. Note that connection, that theme again. And remember Deuteronomy 17, that the king was not to multiply wives. So, what do you think, Gad, or whoever it was that wrote this, and of course God ultimately, what do you think he's saying here at the end of the chapter? Is he saying, simply, here's some facts, learn them, and you know you can win in Bible trivia? David was spared the sin of murder. But David committed the sin of adultery. David multiplied wives. David took things. But he's not alone. You have Abraham, you have Jacob, and certainly you have Solomon. They're sinful in this way. 
You notice how God graciously will stymie us in our sin in some ways, but allow us to sin in other ways. Does that mean he doesn't care? No, not necessarily. But just because you do well here, or God helps you to do well over here, doesn't mean you can't just say, hey, I'm good. Be careful of the other side, so to speak. David was swayed by beautiful women. We know that from Bathsheba and here now with Abigail. David was a man after God's own heart, but he was far from perfect. And this is another indication. We need David's son for our Savior. David is not the Messiah. He is the anointed one, but he is not the anointed one. And so here's another indication of this truth. But For all of David's sin, here are multiplying wives, he is not like Saul. He is fundamentally different. He is a godly man who sins, not an evil man like Saul and Nabal. All right, let me end here briefly by reading two things to try to tie some of this together. And this is first from uh, Dr. Uh, Burgeon here. And uh, let's see, he says this. Abigail's outrageous actions, including negating her husband's intentions in a matter, assuming moral culpability for actions in which she took no part, giving away part of the family fortune as a gift to one of her husband's enemies, and acting like a prophet and theologian, saved the day for everyone. Had she not been willing to violate the social expectations placed on her, she, um, uh, uh, w- sorry, I'm skipping a part here. Um, then uh, David would have killed Nabal, and he would not have been left alive at daybreak. And then he quotes from a man, Polson. This providential intervention sharpens the contrast between David and Saul. David spared the clan of those who offended him, but Saul wiped the clan out that offended him in Nob. Now, as he's putting these two thoughts together, okay, what Abigail did was, was really out of the box. We're used to women just doing their own thing in our culture today, and, and they don't, uh, we don't have the same kind of social mores and so forth with women in our culture today. But in this day, it truly was outrageous. But she did so for the benefit of everyone. And so I thought that was uh, helpful uh, for us here. But then let me read from Dr. Davis, who um, ties it together here in this way. Anyone who stands back and looks at 1 Samuel 25 as a whole should sense the necessity of God's providence. 1 Samuel is depicting how Yahweh is establishing his kingdom on earth and is showing us why that can only be Yahweh's work. The task can never be fully entrusted to human instruments, for one will honor his sons above Yahweh, like Eli. Another will not be ruled by Yahweh's word, like Saul. The kingdom is not even safe in the hands of godly servants, for Samuel would have chosen another Saul as king in 1 Samuel 16. 
And David, for his part, would have greased the kingdom path with Nabal's blood. There was only one servant who could be trusted with the kingdom. He understood that kingdom glory came from enduring the hostility of Nabal's against him. And he references Hebrews 12, verse 3. And that, of course, is Christ. As great as Abigail was here, as great as David is in certain ways, all of this, again, is pointing us to our need for God and our need for Christ. So, again, I, I feel like I'm just skipping stones here, touching on some of these things. So much for us to see and learn here, and hopefully then we can do so and, uh, and such here. So, Lord willing, next time we'll return to David running from Saul here in chapter 26. So let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you um, for your word and how rich it is in um, certainly information, you might say, and here at the end we learn about all these wives of David and it's, you know, nice factual information to know, but we thank you most of all that you give us your word to teach us uh, how we should live as your people. We are thankful, Lord, for this story of David because it so much reflects who we are and how we get upset when someone offends us. But as we have seen here tonight, Lord, we, we ask that you, yes, would send messengers and, and even events to stymie us in our sin, but we pray even more you'd help us to listen when those messages come and that we would respond here like David humbly, Praising you, thanking you, stopping our sin, acknowledging our sin. Help us, Lord, to do that and not just be defensive and so forth. Help us not to be like Nabal, but uh, to heed uh, these messages and, and, and to respond to your grace. But Lord, as we talk about this, uh, help us also then to leave vengeance to you, to even rejoice when you punish the wicked. But help us not to miss, if you will, the other hand. Help us not to do rightly in one area and then fail in another. Please strengthen us, Lord. We are so thankful, Lord, that our salvation does not depend on us. Our salvation does not depend on other mere humans, like Abigail's. But we are so thankful, Lord, that our salvation ultimately depends on Christ and how he has been perfect for us, that he never sinned once. For this, Lord, we are grateful, and we are thankful that you have sent forth your Son to do this for us. We are thankful, Lord, that you have sent forth your Spirit and the means of grace that enable us, then, to live lives of godliness. So again, Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for your mercies that we might live lives worthy of the gospel, and that we might uh, honor you in all things, especially here when people offend us. And so we pray these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.